Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The rise of populism, the election of Donald Trump, those Brexit voters who wanted to cut down migration numbers, they're all symptoms of a world in which the poorer members of society feel disenfranchised and quite possibly unemployed. So how do we fix the rich-poor gap? That's what we're talking about with Professor Steve Keen in this edition of the Debunking Economics podcast in Britain. There was a report by the Social Market Foundation that reckons the gap between rich and poor is higher than ever before. Not in income, but in wealth, particularly since the global financial crisis, with the wealthy having paid off their debts and amassed savings, with the younger and poorer members of society still in debt and saddled with a big mortgage or struggling to save for one. Meanwhile, wages aren't moving. In America, the Economic Policy Institute reckons even though everyone's working harder and producing more economic growth, they're not getting paid any more for it. And it's been like that since the 70s. Since 1973, the amount of economic output generated by an average hour of work grew 72.2%. On the other hand, pay for the typical worker rose just 9.2%. The benefits of that productivity, of course, will have found their way to the richest members of society. But it's the combination of income and wealth that is having the most impact. So, Steve Keen, how do we solve this problem? Is is part of the problem that wealth is just passed on from generation to generation? And, you know, therefore, is part of the answer actually tackling how much money can be inherited? Do we have a, a, a harsher form of inheritance tax, in other words? Well, that's to some extent, some wealthy people actually have that attitude themselves. So uh, I don't know that the sage of armor has any kids, um, but you'll find people like himself and Bill Gates saying they're actually worried about endowing the kids with too much money. Because if they start with that that level, they're they're never going to do anything particularly interesting. I mean, we've got we've got Jamie Packer to, to use as our local example of therein. Um, so wealth uh, being passed on is actually some of the wealthy themselves when they're talking super wealthy are worried that that'll mean their kids uh, they basically live off the land in that sense. So live off a guaranteed basic income from uh, from their parents mm. and do bugger all of interest. So there there is a in that sense there is a social issue about it's is actually better if we all started from a, a similar position. And uh, but but the in economic theory actually assumes that this is one of the weird things. They basically assume we all start from the same capability to earn an income, and therefore whatever we accumulate in our own lifetimes simply reflects our own creativity, what they call our own marginal product. Now that's rampantly untrue in the real world. They effectively do assume, and um, what the theories of the various models like uh, one they call the permanent income hypothesis uh, assumes you start with uh, zero. You earn money and you save it during your um, early years, and then in your later years you spend it and you go to the grave with zero. Right. And everybody now that's total crap, mm. as we actually know. Did it? And and what has actually happened, of course, behind the cover of that um, myth, we've had an accumulation of wealth. Which uh, Piketty, who's got to us done the, the most comprehensive work on this, but also other people uh, uh, like uh, a guy called Moritz Schulerich, whose work I greatly appreciate. 
they've done it and said, look, this is the most unequal society we've had since the Belle Epoque. Uh, it's quite possibly the most unequal society since and including when we had the, when, when, when the main thing our rulers were doing was building pyramids. So, uh, and that was enormous concentration of, of wealth that is part of, but not the entire explanation for why the economy is in a slump. Yeah. Uh, because as even the most conventional economist will admit, yes, somebody as wealthy as Bill Gates does not spend as much of his, uh, his, his, his uh, wealth and income as somebody uh, who's got 1,000th or 10,000th of that level of wealth. So you get a stagnating economy coming out of too much concentration of wealth. Well, I, you know, I quite like the idea of uh, sort of a heavy inheritance tax because um, I mean, if that's the way to do it, We'll talk about how you do it in just a second. But uh, we just don't need to look at Donald Trump. You know, I mean, he, he is a wealthy man because his dad was a, a wealthy man. and He's basically inherited that wealth, you know, and the story's going around that if he just put all the money in a trust fund, he might actually be better off now um, than, you know, if he'd uh, invested all his money in real estate. Uh, but, I mean, he's, he's a man who's been a success because of the money he inherited. And uh, I wonder yeah. if it would be a different story if he'd started from zero. Yeah, well, it's, and there's actually one of my favourite cartoons. I'm a great fan of Punch cartoons. That's one reason mm. I enjoy talking to Simon Rose and Share Radio so much because Simon used to write for Punch. But there's a Punch car- cartoon that just it remained in my, my collection for a long time. And it had two uh, portly and obviously very wealthy gentlemen leaning back into leather chairs, smoking cigars, and one said to the other, The secret of my success, James, is some advice my father gave me as a child. He said, son, here's a million dollars. Don't lose it. <laughs> Very good advice. Uh, stick it under the mattress. It'll be safe there. Exactly. So, uh, all right. So, uh, is it practical, though? That's, I guess that, that is the no, question. No, that's, 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 that's the real danger. I mean, the, 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 the poor, poor people can't evade tax. I mean, I've been through the, personally, I've been through the exciting experience of transferring some of my superannuation money uh, from Australia to England. Uh, just because I found the cost of living here far higher than it was back home and I needed some extra cash at some point and being whacked with 40% tax on it because they treated that as, as income since it hadn't been taxed back in Australia. So thank you very much, the English state, for taking out 40% of what I thought was savings back in Australia. Uh, when I transfer it over here, and there's no bloody way that I can get around that without doing lots and lots of flights with 10 grand in my suitcase, which, by the way, I have not yet done. Uh, but, of course, <laughs> if you're wealthy, there's so many ways to evade those systems, and you transfer your money offshore, uh, you disguise it, you put the wealth in the name of a spouse, you have various deals to go through Swiss bank accounts. The range of things that could be done to evade this are quite enormous. Well, I mean, let's let's look at the uh, the former prime minister uh, here in uh, here in the UK who uh, inherited some money from his dad. His dad, uh, strangely, left him the maximum amount that he could leave him uh, before uh, he incurred an inheritance tax. Uh, his uh, his mum, of course, got all the rest of the money because, uh, as the spouse, she wasn't taxed, and then she gave a, a gift, a very nice gift, to her son. Uh, that's tax evasion, surely. Oh, yeah, it is. And it's not it's it's evading the spirit, but not the principle, the, not the letter of the law. Yeah. And that's what, of course, you pay you know, lawyers very expensively for. If you ever watch the watch the wolf on Wall Street, there's some wonderful stuff where the wolf tried to do that various stuff with a guy in, in Switzerland, Switzerland, one of the funniest parts of a very funny movie, but also a very realistic one. So we have a real dilemma there. And uh, George Cooper, I recommend people reading one of George, any of George Cooper's books. Uh, George was a, a physicist who worked as a trader in Goldman Sachs and then uh, coming from a, a critical perspective regarded economics as sheer drivel 
and is now writing critical books about it, but also trying to devise a different way of thinking about the economy. And George's proposition, which I think is quite neat, is that uh, you have to think about uh, capitalism as a circulation system. And if you don't have the circulation of the money that's concentrated, then effectively it's like having all your all your blood ending up in your in your legs and uh, getting deep vein thrombosis. It's mm. not very healthy for the system. So he sees the, the democratic taxation system as a way of ensuring that recirculation. So the wealth that accumulates through capitalist uh, principles, which can be good stuff. Of course, you get someone like Elon Musk. I hope he has a lot of money to pass on to his kids. And I hope that he doesn't. I do much of that way instead. He puts it into Mars. But uh, that accumulation then means they get taxed and the money gets transferred back down and can be, and be spent again. The circulation continues. But the trouble is that the scale of wealth we're talking about now is so great and the international nature of finance gives so many means for people to exploit uh, you know, tax loopholes that are built there by other countries to attract money in the first place. It's an incredibly hard thing to do. So a wealth tax itself wouldn't necessarily work uh, because there's so many ways to take your wealth offshore, uh, to, to hide it. Uh, it's it's you know, it's mm. it's just it is an incredibly complicated issue. But it isn't one of the issues that it uh, it really does hit house prices. So you know I'm very wealthy. Yeah. I'm going to have a really big house, and uh, the great thing is I can pass that house down to to the kids, and uh, uh, and those kids then sell it. But you know they've got the they've got the money available so that they can buy another big house, and so you start to get wealth separated by the assets that you hold. And this is where a lot of uh, people who are inspired by Henry George. I get berated by them all the time about reading Henry. I don't regard Henry as much more than just a, an extender of Ricardo's theory of uh, internet, of, of rent. But they're right in saying that if you if you if you whack a land tax on that sort of gain and you accumulate the gain that comes out really from the fact that there are very few improvements necessarily made to the property by the individual. There are improvements made to, by society in terms of a city getting more dense. What was once as a, you know an outer suburban becomes inner suburban in terms of, of public facilities being put there, that gets transferred into the private price. And they're saying that's, a, that's actually something which the state created and therefore it should be taxed by the state and then handed back to the populace in general. And there's a strong argument for that. So a, a land tax is one, it would be one way of, of getting around that and in effect being a sort of a, a pseudo wealth tax. Yeah. My problem about that is that I, I have... You, you know my cynicism about, about economists. Well, I've got a, a similar cynicism about politicians. And as soon as they see tax revenue as being based upon house prices, uh, they're already causing bubbles in house prices. That'll make them actually even more encouraged to try to cause bubbles in house prices as a way of generating that state revenue. So, uh, which of course is not necessary, but that's that's the way they think. So I, um, I, I, again, this is not an easy thing to design. I certainly, yeah. this is one of the cases where it's an area where I know there's something important, but I, I'm in one case, this case, I haven't thought, how the hell do you get around it? Because the end game, obviously, is to get back to that uh, zero starting point that you're talking about, or, or as close to it as we can. And, uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, I mean, people talk about, well, you know, it's been the family home for generations, we should be able to pass it on to, uh, to, the, to the next generation. I mean, mm. it, is, that, is that a luxury that is causing too much destruction? And we should, just, I mean, start by losing that way of thinking. Well, I, I, I've got some sympathy for that way of thinking as well. I mean, you can understand somebody saying, I, I would want to pass on a good life for my kids, and, you know, and then bang at the, the state taxes that out of existence. Then there's a, there's a genuine sense of resentment there. Mm. Uh, mm. But the, you have to say, at the same time, hey, okay, give me a break. There's a limit for this. 
when you're talking about passing on a suburban house in Hurstville, it's rather different to passing one uh, a house which is half the size of Fort Clues. Uh, maybe taking the Australian analogies, a bit of Chekhov, where else was, can I use there, Islington and, uh, and Mayfair? Um, so that's that type of attitude is something which is then used by people to argue for the abolition of wealth taxes. So we used to have wealth taxes, of course, and we used to have land taxes, and they've all been removed largely on the argument that, you know, this is all uh, cutting back on enterprise and reducing uh, the stimulus to innovate and so on. And, all. and as John Galbraith, John, John Kenneth Galbraith once brilliantly said, uh, you can summarise mainstream economic theory by saying that the, the poor don't uh, work enough because they're paid too much and the rich don't work hard enough because they're paid too little. Um, and, and this is another instance of that, that way of thinking. So we, we have to look and say well, what we've done in terms of removing all those taxes and removing the progressive income tax, we went too far. And we have now enabled, uh, uh, without being aware that what we did by doing that was unleash capitalism's tendency to massively concentrate wealth, yeah. and by concentrating wealth, actually strangle itself. Right. So, I mean, are you talking about going back to the sort of tax levels that we had in the 1970s? Where- no, no, I'm not. I mean, I think the Beatles were on stage were paying, what, 98 cents in the dollar tax. Yeah. And you've got to say, look, at some point, uh, we want to bring back a lot of it, but, we, but you can't go that high. Uh, but, of course, you don't want to go to the stage where you're paying 20% tax or a flat tax system. So, the, uh, and, you, and you have to find something which is very hard to evade. So, Far be it from me to uh, throw any kudos as the way of the Hansons, or Pauline Hansons of the world, to talk about a nutcase down in Australia. Um, but some people have been arguing for transactions tax as a way to try to capture this. And that's the uh, one of the advantages of, of, of transaction tax, particularly taxes on, on financial transactions, is that it's very hard to evade them, or it's very easy to evade income tax, for example, or even wealth taxes by claiming you know the money has gone off has gone offshore, or the profits were made offshore. Right. So, but you, um, but you can, ta- yeah. but you can tax, and I can I take your point about you know well politicians might see it as an opportunity to try and create uh, property bubbles, but I mean I mean th- that's a fairly sound way of taxing people as well you know you know that if you know the value of a property people have got the property because that's their lifestyle and they um you know they, they don't want to compromise their lifestyle it's there for you it's clear it's evident and you know what they've got yeah but it's also you've got to look at the side effects of these taxes as well because the side effects themselves can end up getting political support for undermining the taxes so i have friends who by sheer circumstance uh, live in you know, a gorgeous house inherited from their parents, mm. uh, when, when and when even even the la- even the you know, current level of land tax that's charged on that is sufficient to mean that they've got to think we maybe got to sell this place and get out of it, and that then gives resentment, which means they're likely to vote for a political party that argues to abolish land tax. Right. So, but I mean, but really, that's, that's going to be yeah. the case. Whatever you do, if you give them a, if you give, make them a, a, you know, wealthy people very heavy tax, then they're going to, you know, it, that's going to influence their their political direction as well, isn't it? I mean, what, yeah. whatever you do, there's going to be people are always going to say, oh, this is the politics of envy. You just want to tax the rich mm-hmm. for no reason yeah. whatsoever. Um, you know, whatever you do, that you. You're going to get that result. Yeah, but ultimately it comes down to the getting the attitude, which you find people like Nick Hanur having, a very a very wealthy entrepreneur who, who funded uh, Amazon and has written a brilliant uh, article called The Pitchforks Are Coming, saying to his uh, ultra-wealthy friends that if we don't redistribute the wealth, the, the political systems are going to fall apart yeah. and we're going to find ourselves on the wrong end of pitchforks. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so they're, there is They're going to have to live in walled communes. They're going to have to pay yeah. for security and yeah. they won't be able to go do things like go out and enjoy the countryside because yeah. uh, who knows who's hiding behind the tree. 
That's right. And I like the Kim Kardashian's experience, uh, which we're, we're leading, reading a lot about now. If you read such things, uh, it just shows. <laughs> Not what, often. What, no, I just look at the pictures, frankly. Um, so, <laughs> when when you have this sort of thing happening, then you end up with the, you you end up replacing taxes with a range of political and social restraints on your own freedom. Uh, that in some ways you'd be better off. <laughs> Paying a bit more tax and not having to worry about that level of um, of of uh, isolation right. to hang on to the wealth. So, I mean, we uh, uh, there's been statistics over the last couple of weeks in the UK saying actually the uh, the rich poor gap uh, is narrowing. It's not widening, but I guess you know it depends over what time scale you measure these things. Well, this, this this is partly where I come back to my focus on private debt because overwhelmingly the valuation of assets is driven by the level of leverage. Mm. Of course, there's nothing economic theory denies. Therefore, it's proof that it's probably true. And, uh, and and if we can reduce the level of leverage drastically, reduce the private debt, and that's sort of the modern debt jubilee idea that I'm talking about, then that actually has the same impact as putting the taxes on the rich. Yeah. But it does it by giving everybody money rather than try to take money off the rich. So to some extent, our way around this may be realizing the state has a capacity to create money itself and to distribute that money based on uh, on a per capita basis. And by doing it, you actually dilute the concentration of wealth that's occurred uh, courtesy of the level of leverage that the rich have managed to hang on to that the poor uh, can never take advantage of. So it may be that rather than using taxation, we should use government spending as a way of uh, getting around this. And because the government has an unlimited capacity to spend its own currency, that may be more effective than trying to tax. Yeah, and that uh, using government money rather than private money, because, of course, you know, governments in the past have tried to say, well, look, we will make the, the poorer elements of society feel better off by making them, uh, you know, trying to introduce ways that they can afford to buy their own home. But, of course, that all mm. that has done is... Uh, it's boost house prices. Boost house prices, exactly. Add, yeah. add to that. But are we going to get to the stage uh, very soon, like in, in, in less than a generation, where, uh, you know, I mean, we're almost there now, where you look at house prices and then you look at wages and say, who are these people who are af- able to afford these houses? Because they are 8, yeah. 10, 15 times the, uh, the, the average wage. And uh, the answer has got to be, well, either they've got some money from mum and dad or, they're, or they're, they're from overseas and they're wealthy, which means they got their money from mum and dad. Whichever way you look at it, the money's come from the generation I'll- before. Ultimately, that's the case. So unless we reduce the, the, this level of asset prices, and that's, that's the way in which the wealth disparity is manifest, unless we reduce them back towards what, what average incomes are, we're going to have total social breakdown. And just like simply anecdotal stuff that I, I, I observe as well as economic theory, uh, when, I, uh, lived in, when I was in Sydney recently and I catch the train from Sydney to Thurstville, where my mother lives, it's a less than about 3 bucks fifty for a one, one-way train journey. Uh, in England, that was £6.10 for the similar distance to go from Waterloo to Surbiton. I got back here, it's now £7.10. Mm. Now, in terms of, 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 uh, of my income versus the income I got back in Australia, that means that train travel in London is five times the cost that it is in Sydney. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, now, it's from uh, yeah. from Farnham in Surrey into London. Yeah. It's thirty two pounds. Yeah. Mm. Well, then what that what that means is, first of all, the poor certainly can't afford to buy in London. Secondly, even the rents are driving them out, even though rents aren't quite as much in a bubble as house prices are because of all those vacant properties we're talking about. Uh, the, the, I mean, the stuff is not even being available, and and yet the demand is still there to live in London. So people are forced to live on the outskirts, and then they're forced to pay commercial prices for their transport. It's getting to the point. And you're certainly seeing plenty of correspondence on this front. In the in the English press, 
where people are saying it's so bloody expensive to travel into London, I'm not going to apply for a job there. I'm going to try to find something local that might reduce my income by half, but it reduces my cost by as much or more. I spend less time on the train, and consequently, the city starts to die. Right, but it's not yet, and that is not because yet, and that it gets back to this point that it's not yet because there are still people who can afford those houses because they have money which has been passed on from mum and dad. Yeah, but the resentment is rising, and that's this is the thing you can see the sense of social breakdown. Which come back to Nick Hernell's points about the the pitchforks are rising. Yeah. People are the, the people at the bottom of the hierarchy. It's not so much the wealthy are outrageously wealthy, and the rest of us are doing okay. It's that the the wealth of the rich is enormous, and the people at the bottom are really suffering now. So all the talk about you know we shouldn't have a class a class war attitude to conflict between workers and capitalists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We should have one between workers and financiers, which is where this wealth really occurs. Well, it's landowners Uh, landowners and serfs, isn't it? We're getting back to that stage. Yeah, we're getting back to that sort of situation. And ultimately what serfs do is revolt. Yeah, for sure. But, I mean, before that happens, I'm still wondering what the answer is. Because okay, it, yeah. it, it, I, I think th- this, this is where the modern monetary theory approach makes a lot of sense because mm. the focus upon taxation as your way of trying to claw that money back uh, effectively has behind it the argument the government has to tax in order to have money. Now, the whole point of, of the modern monetary theory understanding, which I must disagree with, is a part of that theory, but this is absolutely mechanically true. The government spends and then taxes to take the money back out of circulation again. It doesn't have to tax to raise the money because it is actually one of the two institutions in society that can create money, the other, of course, being the banks, private banks. And private banks create money, they also create debt. When government spends, it only taxes if it wants to take money out of circulation. But how is that helping helping this problem? How is that helping? On this particular problem, if you find that the tax system is so rorted by the rich so that you can't actually get that money back then you can say, well, we don't actually need to tax you to get the money to spend. We can simply spend, but spend that money in a per capita way right. that actually that attenuates the, the wealth inequalities that have occurred. And if that generates a level of consumer price inflation, or if it causes debt to fall and therefore house prices to fall, tough shit, guys. Yeah, levels everything out. So in other words, yeah. if you've got to earn, it gets to the stage where to buy even a moderate house, you've got to earn a million pounds a year and then the government gives everyone a million pounds a year something of that nature not quite that high but definitely something which means you can cancel the debt I mean, that's what i want to do but you find a way to reduce the debt level which will reduce the inequality and the government can do it by its spending policies it doesn't have to use just taxation policies. right but the, the idea so we do we get back to and we are you know you and i have spoken about this before the idea that everybody uh, gets a gets a guaranteed income uh, and yeah, yeah. on top of that, they work and, you know, work to make themselves better off. But uh, but at least that guaranteed income is, is creating a base on which things like. Uh, yeah. And I can see that push of money is going to influence the price of assets and they will yeah. you'll, you'll reach a, a point where that gap starts to narrow. Now this might this is a, when you read uh, complex systems theory. Uh, what you find is a little concept called obliquity, saying if you actually wanted to, to change something, don't try to do it directly. And of course, by saying well, we've got this huge inequality, let's tax it to make it more equal, uh, you end up with the type of international financial structure we get now, which actually makes the inequality even worse. Mm. So maybe you should have taken an oblique attack, and rather than trying to do it by taxing, do it by spending. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to the screams of the rich when they don't get the same amount of money to cancel the debt that the poor do compared to their level of wealth. <laughs> yeah, because it just needs to be a flat amount. Absolutely. It's, it's like the reverse of Margaret Thatcher's poll tax in a way, isn't it, really? It's a exactly. negative poll tax. I love it. Again, this is, I mean, the stuff that I see in, in England, the, t- the stuff that Thatcher brought in, uh, things like well, I pay the same tax per bedroom as uh, 
as as as, as, as Saudi prince does. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, she lost because of that, didn't she? She lost her mind and she lost her job yeah. as a result of that particular policy. Hey, look, next time we'll talk about uh, government spending then a little bit more because I want to know if the government is spending money. Uh, I want to know what they spend it on and does that have an influence on the economy? If, if it's something that uh, increases productivity, presumably that's going to have more than uh, uh, than creating jobs or paying people a little bit more when they've already got a job, if you see what I mean. So we'll talk about that next time. Uh, good to talk for now, though. Thank you. You're welcome. There we are, once again, solving the problems of the world. Well, at least trying to anyway. But a, a radical rethink about how economies work and the role of government. That seems what's needed for sure. And that is the Debunking Economics podcast for today. He was Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again in a few days. How does appreciation feel to you? A rising rush of warmth? A building wave of confidence. At Reward Gateway Eden Red, we know appreciation appreciates in value. Starting with people, radiating through companies to transform their performance and productivity. Capture the power of appreciation with our total employee experience platform. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.